Shorts are like trousers for hot days. In summer, we bare our legs. Grateful skin under warm rays, painted Easter eggs, in which you can run, swim, and cycle. Mine are purple. Oh, baggies, my baggies. Purple, short, and baggy. Oh, my God. I'll take a bow. Wow, thank you, Anne. You're welcome. For that riveting ode to your pair of purple Patagonia shorts. Yeah. And if you haven't got the hint, today we're talking about the company <laughs> Patagonia and focusing a bit on its owner. Yeah. Or previous owner, I suppose, founder, Yvonne Schwinard. And we're going to talk about his life, about the company, and about the recent news, obviously, of him giving away all of his shares, which is all of these shares of the company, to a trust, which is going to be a cool conversation. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your poem? Well, I believe it or not, I've actually been feeling quite writerly and, dare I say, talented. But mm. when I sat down to write this one, I realized I had never written an ode to a, co to a company before, mm -hmm. and it felt a bit weird. So all I could write about was my only Patagonia uh, branded possession, which is, as I mentioned, a purple pair of the shorts that are called the baggies, right? That's the name of them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't have much to say about it. Incredible. It felt weird to, to write about a company. Yeah. A, I mean, a poem. definitely it isn't your average company, Yeah. as we'll get to. But I'm, it feels a bit strange to do a whole episode on any company because mm. it seems a bit counterintuitive to what we talk about a lot. But I guess we can preface the whole conversation by stating our thoughts on capitalism. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are your thoughts on capitalism? So my thoughts on capitalism are that I don't think it's always bad. I think it tends to be bad without regulation. So obviously that's not just pure like free market capitalism, but I think with some good people, it can be very beneficial. Mm. I think that with regulation, it can be very beneficial, but I think the people need to be different who are in the system and the people aren't different. So I think it's bad. Yeah. But if everyone was like Yvonne, then it would be incredible mm. because there'd be a bunch of money to go towards climate action, social justice issues and the like. Yeah. The, the mythical benevolent billionaire yeah i think that's really what this episode's can what i found so interesting and why we're doing this episode which is a little bit unsolicity mm -hmm. is because it's this really fascinating case study of someone working from within the system basically mm -hmm. um to to change the system i suppose you would say and you um learned or were told quite a bit about this case study in your business classes right yeah you always talk about that yeah because it was always comedic to me because i did a business major or like a business degree and then a major in sustainability so i'd be flipping between basically the classes with all the capitalists and the ca classes with all the socialists <laughs> and it was just it was quite the contrast and whenever they talk about patagonia they'd say oh great marketing great work culture and a lot of the things are true but they would often take these things that yvonne intended to be like not anti-consumer, but anti-consumption. Yeah. And he, they would say, oh, this is such a great tool. Like you could really apply this to make more money, basically. But some things that he did was take out a full-page ad on a Black Friday in the New York Times and said, don't buy our product. And everyone in the business circle is like, oh, yeah. Genius. So sneaky. Yeah. But then in reality, he literally just meant, 
do not buy this unless you need it because that's silly. And then, yeah, there are a bunch of other case studies like, oh, it's really cool. They let their people um, work like flexible schedules. This is really innovative. It can lead to more productivity. But obviously, when he has these models that he implements, he's not thinking about peak productivity. He's just thinking about well-being and, yeah, keeping the company going. Mm -hmm. Daycares as well they have, right? They have daycares. Offices, headquarters. Yeah, they were some of the first businesses to ever have in-house daycare and yeah flexible schedules work from home or just like really nice offices that aren't clammy you don't have to wear a suit clammy yeah (laughs) so before we get into the episode let's just mention our little website in which on which people can buy our two zines one on degrowth one on education those are both really really great publications probably the best things ever written that's my plug for those and also you can sign up to our weekly kind of email newsletter called Field Notes on that website. Find us on social media. I don't recommend that. I'll do like a Patagonia. Don't go on those websites. Yeah. I mean, I haven't posted on them in months. Yeah. Okay. But they're there. (laughs) They exist for communicating, I suppose. And finally, we have book club on Thursday. So if you want to join, send us a message, send us an email, and we will add you to the book club. It's Thursday at 6 p.m. EST. We're reading the overstory, the first five chapters. So... You can catch up if you want to join. Just let us know. Exciting times. Cool. So, Yvon Chouinard, um, Wikipedia calls him first and foremost an American rock climber, mm-hmm. which I kind of liked because he just has the, the small matter of a billion dollar company that he also founded, mm-hmm. um, which he founded in 1973, Patagonia, after already kind of having a company selling those things that you use for rock climbing, right? Pythons? Yeah, Pythons. Yeah. I knew that. I just didn't. I knew that the audience wouldn't know. They wouldn't care. Yeah. Yeah. So he started making pythons when he was 19 out of a homemade forge in his parents' chicken coop. Bravo. And he just would make basically a couple a day to sell. And then that would pay for his rock climbing and his camping and his adventures. Mm -hmm. And that's really all he intended it to be. But then it eventually, they were such high quality. He really did care about them. He wanted them to be good that from selling pythons up until when he founded Patagonia, he was one of the top outdoors salesmen in America from like the 60s and the 70s. And that was even before he founded the actual clothing brand Patagonia. So before that, it was all tools and gear. So ropes, gloves, those types of things. Mm -hmm. And I had a few interesting things I learned about his childhood that I thought was very solacine and just kind of hilarious. So he was born in Maine, but then moved to California when he was eight, where he joined a falconry club. Do you know what a falconry club is? Uh, Something to do with falcons. Yeah, I just thought it was like, you know, it's like the Masons Club or like some kind of club. And they're not actually Masons. Boy Scouts. Yeah. But these, yeah, they actually have to do with falcons. So it's the people who hunt using like birds of prey. So they'll like train them. It's those people you always see on the street just like holding a falcon. I've never seen those people. You've never seen them? No. I've seen several in my lifetime and I'm like, who? Why are you so... Sounds like I should join though. You really like big birds. Yeah. So I think, yeah. So the guys that are really cool with big birds of prey and then they release them and then when the birds are going to swoop down, they're like, that's where the that's where the mammal is oh, I that see. I need to go hunt. They use it as like a radar. Yeah. So he joined that club where he learned how to repel and climb basically 
and at the age of 14. And then when he was 16, he did his first big pilgrimage as a climber and he rebuilt or built a car just casually. Okay. And I was like, we don't usually praise cars in this episode, but if you're going to drive a car, have built it yourself. Well, what I do like about car culture <laughs> and always admire is the DIY-ness mm-hmm. of it, like the, that kind of input that the owner can have. I feel like most of our tools these days don't have that, even most cars these days, mm-hmm. moving way away from being able to do anything to them yourselves. So I do, I've do. i always thought that was a cool thing, as much as I don't like stink chariots. Mm-hmm. So he built a car at the age of 16 and then drove it to Wyoming where he just spent the summer learning the ropes, literally learning the ropes and learning about pythons and learning how to make things and how to use them. And then, yeah, he just went on his merry way for the next like 15 years, just spending upwards of 200 days a year outdoors. He has a statement saying that he didn't own a tent until the age of 40. Okay. So you just picture this, this man out in the woods underneath like a tree branch. With a falcon. With a falcon, of course. Yeah. And one of my favorite stories that I read about him was that in what year was it 1962 he was imprisoned yes for riding a train so basically hitchhiking on a train Mm -hmm. and the charge that he was arrested under was wandering around aimlessly with no apparent means of support (laughs) (laughs) i was like that's just so funny that someone literally can't just wander around it's like it's illegal like you're gonna be (laughs) arrested the charge was being um yeah he has a lot of interesting stories about his adventures in the wilderness. <laughs> there was this quote from him. He was like, it's not an adventure until everything goes wrong. I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. but it's something like that. So he's kind of your your cliche, like... Living on a can of tuna. Yeah, can of tuna vagabond. Let me mm-hmm. put it like that. Which is like an inspiring figure, I guess. Yeah. And it's really cool because... Like a man like that, you wouldn't even expect to think to sell things. Yeah, exactly. But in the world we live in which will always be the case, you'll need some kind of way of trading. Hopefully we've painted an accurate picture of how he's the opposite of a businessman. Yeah. A typical kind of um, money-grubbing, money-grubbing, uh, suit-wearing, office-inhabiting yeah. um, CEO or founder. And I think he is like, he often says that, he's like, I'm a businessman, but I never intended to be, basically. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, he's kind of done the ultimate, like, non-businessman thing recently but we'll get into that so about patagonia the company they are obviously a very sustainable and forward-thinking brand just some facts about that their distribution centers all their offices their headquarters and their retail stores use 100 renewable energy in the usa and 76 percent globally which is quite impressive mm-hmm. um, they aim to be completely carbon neutral company by 2025 and what i find interesting is that it's in such a traditionally terrible and polluting <laughs> and unsustainable industry and they have i mean it's not a perfect company as no companies are as they acknowledge mm-hmm. like they still use a lot of microplastics and polyesters which obviously we know now aren't great for say the oceans but they try and it's like if every brand if every company should i say tried mm-hmm. then that would just be exponentially better yeah because there'd be innovations to just have a solution to microplastics yeah. or like an alternative. But if it's just one or two companies here and there doing the work, it's going to be a lot slower. What, if, what I find also rare about them is that it's a customer-facing brand, where so often it's like if, if someone told me there's this fashion company um, that 
is this good for the environment and has been for years, I'd be like, it's probably some brand that you've never heard of that like just does supply chain stuff or just does manufacturing. But this mm -hmm. is like, everyone knows this brand. That's what's so fascinating about it. That's what's so inspiring, I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that it's continued to grow despite their commitment to ethics. Yeah, or because of it. Yeah, because I say despite because often when companies, they're super focused on maintaining their integrity customers might just be like oh, i'm not going to pay that much for that kind of a That's product true, yeah. because it's silly i can get the same thing for cheaper people have always really valued the quality and the the system that is patagonia what's the whole reason that companies do cut corners is to increase the profit margins mm -hmm. so this is like a an example that it's not the only way to do it which is what i find fascinating and just some other things. In the 90s, they started using all recycled polyester. They claim to have recovered over 3.5 million pounds of discarded fishing nets, which is cool. And they have like a venture capitalist arm. This is the most interesting thing that I didn't know about the company before doing research, in which, uh, or through which rather, they donate funds to like land conservation and carbon sequestration and like genuine climate friendly activities. Enterprises, yeah. Enterprises. I mean, he was the founder, him and then another guy, of the 1% for the planet, which has become quite common, yeah. especially in Canada, I realize, because 1% for the planet is basically a commitment that companies make to donate 1% of their pre-tax sales to climate or social justice initiatives. And it's not just, oh, we're just going to throw it at Greenpeace. It's like really, really specifically audited companies or projects that they're going to donate to and you can go on the website and there's just like literally thousands and thousands of projects that they donate to yeah and so they really split it up which i think is interesting instead of just saying oh we're going to give three million to greenpeace they're saying these tiny little local projects could greatly benefit from two thousand dollars so we'll give it to them and there's over 1200 companies that are part of it now and it was just founded in 2002 so taken off quite a bit mm. and the canadian fair trade organization has partnered with one percent for the planet so for people to be certified fair trade in canada they have to donate one percent to the planet at least of one of their products so it can be not the whole company it won't be all of johnson and johnson but it would be like one product might be a one percent for the planet product which i think is okay but it'd be great if it was just mandated and that's what he always says he's like if we literally just made this a law, <laughs> things would be fine. It's yeah. 1%. Like, that's so little. I mean, it's a lot of money for, like, the causes. But in the grand scheme for the companies, it would just take a little bit of budgeting. Mm. Because most founders were saying wouldn't be so generous, basically, and so mm -hmm. forward thinking also. Because this was what I, what's really, like, notable. I was trying to think of the difference between Patagonia and other so-called environmental companies and there's mm -hmm. a lot of them like clothing companies it seems like every other one that just launched in the last five years or so is um saying that sustainability is the priority mm -hmm. and but patagonia has this history of genuinely putting its money where its mouth is mm -hmm. and also just every word that comes out of it is something like like i had this quote from him it said um Everything we make pollutes. The most responsible thing we can do is to make each product as well as we know how so it lasts as long as possible. Mm -hmm. That's just not the ethos that I think most so-called sustainability-focused brands uh, espouse. And that's, I think, the big difference. Like you said with the ad about 
don't buy this. Like it's it's genuine, it's serious. The best thing we can do is make this last as long as it can. And it's the that's the complete opposite of almost all companies. Like think about the technology companies. Mm-hmm. They they deliberately design it to break down, and so does so is most of fa- fast fashion, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't last beyond a year or two, which is crazy. Yeah, and I think on top of that, the idea, this was a quote not from him, but about him, and it said he didn't create a culture of things you want. He tried to create a culture of things that would serve you. Yeah. And I think that's another huge difference from the new sustainable fashion brands because they still feel like, I need to make money off of this, yeah. even if it's well-intended. I mean, I find myself thinking this, oh, if I could sell something that I could then put all the money towards climate change. Mm. But it's like, you can say that but the product needs to actually help help That's not just I, be a product i always wonder like what i'm talking about the sustainability brands i always wonder what is the point of you mm-hmm. like how do you actually help by existing because you're mm-hmm. just adding clothes and the world doesn't really need more clothes mm-hmm. but on that note i had this other quote also not by Vaughn, but by a uh, canadian environmentalist naomi klein and she said what if we shop to live instead of live to shop and i was thinking about that it's like the fact that shopping is recreation is so such a cursed thing mm-hmm. it's, it's so gross and that i think is also at the core of um Yvon Chouinard because it was much more of a craft thing it was much more of a mm-hmm. trying to fill this need like yeah. with the with the clothes initially it's like these are harder these are like these will last these are rugged these are at the time hard to find so i'm mm-hmm. going to bring these to um the usa which is what happened right they came mm-hmm. from scotland or wherever it was yeah they came from the uk and with the with the climbing things as well it's like this is filling a gap. People need this. And then once we realized that this is doing damage, then he started pushing the clean climbing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like rock climbing that doesn't leave an impact and we're going to sell um, or produce tools for that. Yeah. I mean, his very first, what do you call it, catalog opened with an essay saying to the people who were going to be reading this catalog, you're horrible. Stop <laughs> doing what you're doing. <laughs> Basically, it was just like super, he's always just incredibly blunt about the impacts of our actions. And he didn't say stop climbing, so obviously he loves climbing, but he said we need to make a change. And obviously we've seen it with climbing. It changed very quickly because he just hammered it home to the climbers and then it all changed and people were receptive to it. Whereas in like the 70s and 80s and 90s, so like 30 years, but when climate science started coming to the forefront he would partner with buyers at walmart or people at nike or gap and he'd say hey now's your chance you can make these changes it'll be better for your business it'll be exponentially better for the planet and then time after time after time people wouldn't listen to him yeah and then it basically got to where we were today but he was like a one-man army just like trying to take on walmart or trying to take on nike and he was just, mm. he's been trying and just like literally extending himself so much in a way that I just like, I don't know if I ever could. And I really look up to him for that. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is an idealistic level of devotion that's, you know, you rarely see someone with like uncorrupted values mm-hmm. with that big a company. Like I looked it up, Patagonia is, you know, like, there's different ways of valuing it, but based on the market valuation, I think it was for the last two years, it's the 81st biggest um, clothing brand in the world, mm-hmm. which is huge. And um, for not trying, it's not like exactly what I'm saying. Like, they don't try to maximize profits. Like mm-hmm. in the press release that they put out for 
this new news, which we'll get to um, in like the FAQ frequently asked questions. It's like, but does this mean you'll just try to maximize profits so that you have more money for the environment? And they're like, no, of course not. Yeah. And I was like, this is just hilarious because every other company, would that is a given that we try to maximize mm-hmm. profits at all cost. Yeah, I also saw a, a concern posited by a writer in the New York Times about this. And he said, well, since they don't have a stake in the company anymore, they're going to stop caring. And I'm like, they're also going to keep caring because they yeah. know the money will go towards the environment. Yeah. It's like, they just seem like the most pure family. Because I didn't realize he had a family, mm. which almost changed it even more for me. Because I was picturing him being just this rugged, vagabond, kind of grandfather-like figure. But he has kids and he has a wife. And it's like, normally when people, I think, start a company and then they have good intentions and they have a family, they're like, well, I need to have the best for my kids. Yeah. So then I feel like it starts almost pulling away from some values but him and his kids and his wife everything that comes out of their mouth is just like how are you so selfless yeah not just them but the the other like higher up people like the ceo Mm -hmm. it it seems like it's a culture that self-selects for people who care about it because otherwise why would you go to work at patagonia Mm -hmm. probably get paid more elsewhere if you're like a high-ranking corporate cfo or whatever it is Mm -hmm. so yeah that's interesting and the other thing that i found that differs them greatly from other companies even big ones is that they don't do a ton of collaborations which i find mm-hmm. really um again kind of noble in the fact that they're so i mean there are some but it's like with this fishing brand yeah. like it's not <laughs> it's not what you would expect from what is such a common brand mm-hmm. um and there was this quote it said that this was like a, a company released to a newspaper or something like that so it wasn't like an official thing but it was just a quote from someone at the company Patagonia is starting to weed out certain corporate clients to focus on customers to prioritize the planet. Mm. It's like that's the internal messaging, basically. Yeah. That's it's not just it's not just words, and I find that very very interesting because you see like a brand like the North Face, mm-hmm. you see them doing collaborations with every other like not fast fashion but not sustainable brand. Like mm-hmm. they'll do something with Nike or they'll do something with Supreme or something like that, and Patagonia could. Um, given their, what would you say, like social, given the clout that the brand kind of has, Mm -hmm. but they don't. And I think that's very respectable. Yeah, for sure. I also want to talk about the logo. You like the logo? Yeah, I love the logo. Yeah. I, okay. Because of the, what I learned in university in my business classes, I always had this hesitation about Patagonia, assuming that there was some kind of Seed, deep-seated um maleficence like yeah kind of it's actually not that good but then the more and more and more i literally have probably how many pages here i have five pages of notes from just one day of research i just was like sucking up so much about <laughs> this company and i was just, like these guys are my role models yeah the logo the culture the products is just like and this the, is amazing the different arms of the company like all we mm-hmm. most people would just think of fleeces yeah. or clothes but when you go on the website what i've what i've always liked about them is it immediately the focus is not on the clothes there's like the few mm-hmm. things on the top it's like shop sport activism food and drink or something like that because i guess they sell like hiking food and stuff but the first thing like that's dominating the screen if you go to patagonia's website um currently is called Working Knowledge, which is a series of articles and videos, um, as they say, grounded in wild places and activism. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's journalism, effectively. And mm-hmm. they, if you go on their YouTube um, channel, there's like 40, 50 minute videos that are nature documentaries, 
um, before you see ads for clothes. Yeah, so, they have so many cool things. They have a thing called like Live Action Patagonia, and you can literally go on, and it will give you super well-suited volunteer opportunities for you. Mm. And it says what I found really cool. Because we're so economically minded, it says if you do this volunteer opportunity, if you volunteer six hours a week for two months doing graphic design for this company or this project, you'll save them $6,000, which they can then put towards the actual, like, the people they're trying to help and things yeah. like that. And they just have so many comprehensive and user-friendly projects in a way that almost no other activism organization does because they don't have the funds but patagonia has the funds so they're able to put out these just super high quality <laughs> documentaries and make them you're trying to buy a sweater but then you're faced with volunteer opportunities educational materials just so great i love them <laughs> dream job maybe uh <laughs> it sounds like we're sponsored by them yeah i wish patagonia exo is seen sometime soon maybe. um <laughs> That idea of craft over products that um, the founder always espouses, I think that's so, and what I was talking about, we should shop to live, not live to shop. And the, the fact that people work five days and then, oh, maybe on Saturday I'll get to go to the mall. Mm -hmm. With no intention of really buying anything specific, it's just, it's the buying. It's the retail therapy that we live for instead of um, buying tools that we need to then do other things or that would mm -hmm. help us do other things. And I was thinking about that idea of the craftsman versus the businessman um, in contrast, perhaps, with how the brand has grown, I would say, exponentially over the last decade or so. Because it seems to my eyes that for many years it was an outdoorsy brand and maybe like dads wore it when they went hiking and things like this. Mm -hmm. But then in the last decade, you see it's almost a meme, I think, that in like tech circles and finance circles, people wear Patagonia a lot. If you walk on, I would say, most college campuses that I've been on anyway, it's like Patagonia anyway, uh, everywhere just to go to class and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's that idea that think these things were perhaps made as craft, not product, but they're being received as products, not mm -hmm. craft. And I thought we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, that's a hard one because I definitely think that. That also fed into my perception of this company of just the fact that everyone owned a Patagonia sweater specifically the one type you know the type the buttons yeah the, the fleece. pocket the fleece yours it was a gift i didn't <laughs> buy it i mean i just can imagine how heartbreaking that would be as yvonne i think that kind of is part of what pushed him to the edge of just mm. like giving away the company because imagine you work your whole life to make these super high quality products that will help people yeah do things that you love and things that they love and then all of a sudden, it was definitely in the last 10 years, because he said during the financial crisis in 2008, profits increased by two to three times. So it was just like there was this weird place that the company took in the economy and in society. Yeah, in culture. In culture, yeah. And it just was like during a financial crisis, for some reason, this was a company that people turned to. They maybe said, well, I can only buy one thing, so I'm going to buy the high quality yeah. thing. And then... Again, they just kept like exponentially growing from 2008 until until today, and it's just it went from yeah like 20 million a year to 100 million, and just how ups I don't know upsetting it would be because you're trying to make the highest quality products, then all of a sudden you're still making these high quality products, but perhaps they're not being valued. Yeah, because it's like people stopped looking at money the way that we did a few years ago. 
because it's like, oh, a $200 sweater now. Everyone probably owns a $200 item. Whereas a few years ago, I mean, maybe it's just because I'm older, but I feel like people didn't. They would still, they're still a bit thrifty and still a bit... Like, not everyone could afford that. Well, I think or people like, spend a lot of money on clothes, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I don't know how I'm trying to... The internet to has made things a lot more um, visual. Like, people are mm-hmm. a lot superficial now. But I also think that... Um, I don't want to sound too negative on it. It was just an, a small note that I had. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that we're in, like, a post-craft world. So we're mm-hmm. kind of like the wall people, um, meaning that we're just, like, rolling around on our phones, drinking smoothies. And mm-hmm. it's like, what do they need? Why would they need rugged clothes they mm-hmm. don't need it so it's like the only option is for it to be like a, a stylistic choice basically like yeah. it's the umbrella theory that i had the other day remember mm-hmm. i said umbrellas look cool because it means that people need to go somewhere like it's mm-hmm. a it's a functional item in a world where almost nothing is purely functional anymore and i think like you see it in fashion a lot that things that originally were just functional or mostly functional anyway become um get used or co-opted i suppose as just like status symbols or um or a kind of cosplay like you see it with the those fishing hats mm-hmm. what are those called that where we used to live in nova scotia everyone who was genuinely like hunting and fishing would wear these hats because that was the culture but mm-hmm. now it's like i think through tiktok they became popular just for like city slickers you know the hats. Yeah, Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, the Bass Pro Shop hats. It's kind of like that, right? Yeah, I think so. And the thing with Patagonia is, you know, like anyone who chooses to buy it as a status symbol, everyone recognizes it and they know that they don't go on sale. They know that they don't make them cheap, that they're not defective or yeah. like sold at an outlet. They're like, you know for sure that that is a high quality garment. And, and also that it, it shows a kind of, this person cares yeah. about the environment kind of thing. And there was this quote that was interesting from one of the people who worked at Patagonia talking about a new type of brand loyalty. And that was the, the word they used. That was the phrase. Um, so it's like, it's not a completely different vocabulary from a Nike, which is what I find really interesting. But they go about it in a, in a way, different way. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's an awful thing. Like, I was just thinking about that, what the logo means. Because um, this is still like a huge corporation that people mm-hmm. flock to. And it still has this... Um, this connotation of luxury and clothing and branding and there are probably some loyalists who are quite into the consumerism so that's still like a bad thing but mm-hmm. i think that the values they espouse is a good thing or a good thing yeah i think so i'll read another quote because i feel like people speaking about this company are always very articulate so someone said i don't think they're an anti-company I think they're just a company that understands its cause and understands how to integrate that cause into its business model. And it does that extremely well. And I think that puts it really well. It's just like, yeah, they're a business. Don't like act like they aren't, but they just keep their, what do you say? They wear their morals on their sleeve, basically. And yeah, they'll shout at you, even if you're buying the product, like, do you need it? (laughs) Are you sure? (laughs) Um, but it's, we need to change as a people, as like a, as a society, because like these companies can exist and provide high quality things, but if we're going to buy them as status symbols, it's something wrong with us, not really yeah. with them. It'd be nice if people camped more though, because yeah, then you so. could buy your, have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cake. Oh, the organism of the week <laughs> is the most commonly seen mammal in Patagonia, which is the region south most region of south america yeah. and it is 
The Patagonian skunk. Ta-da! So the Patagonian skunk, it looks <laughs> like a skunk. That's the most cartoonish drawing you've done for... It's because they're really hard to draw realistically. The way you've drawn the eyes makes it look like it's the character <laughs> in a new Disney movie that's the zany one. Like it always has its tongue out. Yeah. The companion of the main character. So it just looks like a skunk. But nah. I really liked the skunk, the Patagonian skunk, because it's really sleek looking. And sometimes they're like light brown instead of black. Mm. And I just thought they were really fun. And yeah, they're the most commonly seen mammal in Patagonia. And there's nothing really non-skunky about them. They spray if they're scared and to like mark territory and they're 60 to 75 centimeters long one to four kilograms omnivores have you been uh, sprayed <laughs> by a skunk i have not been sprayed by a skunk but i've had pets i saw one last year I remember it was crossing the road mm-hmm. it was very low yeah i like skunks a lot i wish they weren't so smelly but there's they're kind of cute yeah yeah i remember my sister went through a big skunk phase mm-hmm. she was like drawing skunks on everything I'm not sure what that meant. (laughs) (laughs) Nice organism. (laughs) Yeah, so thanks, Organism of the Week, for coming on and sponsoring us. Hopefully, if anyone's in Patagonia, they don't get sprayed by you, or they'll just say hello to you. Do you like the Patagonia products? Do you like their clothes? As you alluded to, I only own one sweater, which was a gift. No, there's two. There's two. There's two? Two jumpers. I have another jumper. I have two Patagonia jumpers, neither of which were bought from me okay from the company but i own them and they're very very warm i'm a very cold individual Mm -hmm. and so i do really like them they're very thick high quality obviously you can get them repaired if anything happens to them but one of them is probably 20 years old like i think it was second hand in the first place so it's and it just looks like new so it's just a, a testament to the quality of their products and i really like them i don't browse i don't think i've ever even browsed their websites but i've gone in their stores which i always enjoy mm. because their stores are always just really i want to talk about that a little bit the yeah. retail experience of patagonia mm-hmm. it's it's akin to the apple store i think yeah. in terms of it's distinct and it's just nice to be in and also yeah. obviously you feel a little bit poor when you're walking around there akin <laughs> to an apple store but um yeah i i didn't really i couldn't find much online i thought i'd be able to find essays about the patagonia shopping experience and how they make their store so distinct in the way that you would about an apple store mm-hmm. But it wasn't much. No, I couldn't find much. But it is um, it's just an enjoyable place to be. I don't know. There's an easygoing something about that wood. Yeah. Why stairs. is it? Because it's like a franchise almost. When you go in, they always have yes. the wood. At least every store I've been in in Canada yeah. has had yeah the wooden stairs, the two floors, the change rooms that look like a cabin. Mm-hmm. And I think what stands out is the difference because the people who work there aren't pushy salesmen like every other store you go in. <laughs> Oh, can I take that for you? I'll put it in the change room and try yeah. it on and we'll just do it. It's like, please stop. I just want to look. Because mm. <laughs> I was even in a thrift store yesterday and someone was like, oh, let me take that for you. Do you want to? And I was like, no, just let me look around. That's why I'm here. I don't want to buy anything. <laughs> but I feel like the Patagonia people appreciate that. They're like, maybe these people are just here to look. And probably nine times out of ten, they are just, they're just like looking at the things. Right. And they don't push it on you. And if you do have any actual questions, because I've been with, my sister bought a sweater there once, and I remember she was like, it was a big deal. It was like, obviously a big purchase, and she was like, asking questions, and the people were really knowledgeable about the makeup of the material, the durability, and the purpose of everything. I just think it's really great. It's like the Genius Bar, but for fleeces. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and they do repairs there as well. 
Mm-hmm. And something that I didn't know is that they accept non-Patagonia like fleeces. Really? Yeah. They don't, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, to like you can, we, well, we didn't talk about the circularity at all, but mm-hmm. I mean, you can give those back to the company. I don't think they would just repair like a North Face jumper for you and give it back smiling, but yeah, <laughs> I'd, but you can donate they, them. Yeah. They accept the materials, which is what is cool. nice. And we didn't talk about that, um, like restitch fixed up website. that they Wornware. Have, right? Yeah. The Wornware. Yeah, Wornware is a cool website because it just looks like a completely different brand. Like, it's not like there's some kind of consistency across the two. It's just like there's the Wornware brand and there's the Patagonia brand. But basically on the Wornware website, you can buy just secondhand Patagonia. So they'll take it in if it's not damaged and they'll resell it. And it's a great accessible tool for hiking gear and stuff, Mm -hmm. which I think is really incredible because often when you're just getting into a hobby, it's like, well, I'm going to have to go buy a bunch of new stuff and I might not even like it. I might not buy the right stuff. So I think it's really cool that they offer that on there. Um, but it's almost always sold out because it's such a great resource. But they also, yeah, take in sweaters and they'll like patch them up. I mean, we, I feel like everyone knows the design of that jumper because it's designed to be fixable. It's why there's different colors and things on okay. it. And it's the same with a lot of their other garments. They're like segmented in ways that they can be deconstructed and repaired. So it's Mm. like if the knees are obviously going to wear out faster than the rest of the pants, they're double lined or they're a different color segment so they can replace it. And I just think that's an incredible, incredible business model because, I mean, if you're looking at it from a business perspective, it's just like you basically have to do no work. You just receive (laughs) people's free products and you resell them, make a bit more money. Um, But from a sustainability perspective, it's just perfect, not perfect. Is great circularity, which is what the economy needs to shift towards because I don't think we'll be able to shift to a completely like agrarian society overnight. Yeah. But shifting towards a circular, sustainable economy basically could happen overnight. (laughs) If there was just some people putting their heads together at every brand saying, how can we make these products durable? How can we repair them? And at the end of life, how can we stop the materials? Responsibility for it. Yeah, from going into landfills. So that's the thing with Patagonia. You probably could send in just like a shrapnel of a sweater and they'd be like, okay, we'll recycle it for you. Mm. I mean, I know that you can do that. (laughs) So it's just like they take responsibility for the fact that they have put these materials out of like their raw form and into something that can't just decompose and they take responsibility. Yeah. So about the recent news, I'll try and word it and then you can correct me with your business, um, (laughs) your business study brain because... It's a little bit confusing. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to just say he gave the company away to the planet, and like on the on the press release, it said like the Earth is our only shareholder now. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's cool, but how is that legally? Like, how does yeah. that actually work? <laughs> so basically, I think what happened is, as of September, so like very recent, probably the most contemporary thing we've ever done on Zoocene. Yeah, it's true. Current events. Look at us. Um, <laughs> he gave the company away to something called Patagonia Purpose Trust, and they like make the decisions Mm -hmm. and the majority of that stock 98 percent of it i think goes to what's called the hold fast collective which is a climate focused non-profit which i'm pretty sure he also owns or founded or something like that it seems like yeah and the way the money is paid out to them so like every cent that doesn't go back into the company Mm -hmm. is paid out through dividends Mm -hmm. like the yearly release thing to this collective which Mm -hmm. as i say is a non-profit so in a way, Patagonia is kind of indirectly acting as a nonprofit, but not really. Yeah. So basically two or three years ago when Yvonne was listed as a 
billionaire on the Forbes list of billionaires. Ooh, the list. He was very unhappy with that. <laughs> and he was like, I am, I'm done. Like, I'm not going to keep, like, this is still too much of a business for me, basically. He's 83. He's just <laughs> been doing this since he was like a teenager. So he's just like, he was like, I'm done. And then it was funny because people who like his closest advisors were like, there was a point where he was threatening to just call a billionaire on the list and give it away. Because <laughs> he was like, you need to make it like you need to find a way for us to like if I die tomorrow for this to go on and this to be sustainable. Because he knew if he just like died, someone would take the company because his kids didn't want it because they also are very anti-business. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, someone's going to take it and they're going to turn it into something evil. So he was trying to basically say, we need to do something about it. And there are a bunch of options. Turn Patagonia into a not-for-profit. Turn, um, just donate all the profits to like the 1% for Go the public. earth. Go public. Um, but a lot of those have associated tax benefits in the United States. Yeah. So the most recent billionaire besides Yvonne to like give away a bunch of their money was a conservative who gave it away to the conservative party somehow. But then he got like hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars in like tax refunds. Yeah. So it's just like he didn't want that to happen because he just didn't want... Yeah. He wanted to sh like make a statement basically. I had this quote on, or this phrase rather, on like the general way in which Patagonia tried to make its decisions from the beginning mm -hmm. which is to choose larger risk tolerances in the service of environmental goals so saying that most companies especially ones that big like for instance going mm -hmm. public um the way that they would make decisions the way they would go forward and the way they'll be ran um would be to minimize risks mm -hmm. because they don't care about environmental goals so this is like a way of wording it, is that we are okay with the risk of making less profit basically whereas if we went public mm -hmm. it's like we'd be too beholden to the shareholders for short-term profits and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. Yeah, so obviously doing this is super risky, and there's a chance that the profits might decline a little bit, just because now there's a board of people running it, and it's not just one person who can just kind of make black and white decisions. But I feel like Yvonne can rest easy, just like knowing that it's now in the hands of a carefully selected group, some of which are like family and friends, yeah. um, who can make these decisions. And he said at least the next 50 years is going to be in good hands it reminds me a little bit of when um let's say some environmentally inclined party like in government wise gets in and they can pass whatever bill and build something but people are like but when the next party comes in when the next government happens when it changes it's all going to get written over so this was a way of trying to codify patagonia and saying even after my my term is over we're going to keep doing this because it's written mm -hmm. now like it's it's unchangeable kind of yeah, he also, like, there's so many things about him saying he just wants to show people that it's possible. Yeah. And I mean, as someone who basically wants to do this, like, that's, <laughs> there was a point, I mean, this is basically the birth story of Solacene in our life's work, is we were just like, what's the most effective way to make change? And it was like, having a traditional company, but using it but being for good, good people is like the, I think, the most effective way, because with going into politics 16 year old asked for like politics wouldn't be there's so much bureaucracy there's so many compromises you'd have to make but if you run your own enterprise then it's like you're just in charge of everything <laughs> so you can just say we're going to take this risk or we're going to we're not going to grow this year we're going to keep it the exact same 
um, profits. We're not going to strive for growth, but it's going to be for the betterment of the world. Yeah. And it's like we don't even know what product or what thing we want to do yet. But it's just like I think that is the best model for people who are looking to it and to see it finally an example of like a a kind of full circle success story. I think this is really inspiring to people like us and mm. anyone because I don't think we're the only ones with this idea. I think no. there's a lot of people. And I just think it's really noble of him to say, to basically sacrifice the rest of his life and his kids' like fortunes, basically, yeah. and say, we are laying this down for the good of the planet and you can do the same. Because <laughs> he's obviously a very happy man. Yeah, in the, in the, um, in the letter that he wrote about this, I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, I'm dead serious about saving this planet. That's how yeah. it ended. And I was like, I, got, I think I got goosebumps reading that. Um, speaking of the solo scene, I just had a couple like solo scene relevant notes that I think we can close the episode on maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so one is that in the solo scene, there won't be people who criticize, always look to criticize people or companies for being um, hypocritical. I always think that's annoying. It's like, Oh, but Patagonia, don't you realize they partnered with this one company one time that uses bad labor or something like that or uses bad materials? Because there is always an admission from people earnestly trying that it's not perfect. So it's not hypocrisy. It's just mistakes. And everyone mm -hmm. makes mistakes. And I don't think we should not try because we'll never be perfect. I've always found that quite annoying when people are like, oh, but Greta uses water bottles. Mm -hmm. It's like, what is that? She's still trying. Like, yeah. Th that annoys me. Um, I understand people don't like being preached at, but I think we shouldn't be so kind of defensive about things like that. And we shouldn't take other people trying as an attack on our own lives. Mm -hmm. um, also, I think there'll be more, more viable ways of organizing ourselves like Patagonia does in groups. Because I think the way that people organize themselves is kind of, that's how you, like that question is kind of, how the world is made. So like if people organize themselves primarily in ways that can increase profits, then the world becomes like what it is now, which is not a nice thing. And if people organize themselves in ways that primarily are helping or making or creating things that people genuinely need with sustainability in mind, then it becomes a nicer thing. So it's like more of these, more of these organizations that kind of evade our very narrow labels of company, charity, political party because if you look at patagonia it's like they're a company but also they do a weird amount of political activism mm -hmm. and donating so it's like what exactly they're not just one thing yeah when i was trying to define what the solacine <clears throat> project basically is i was looking through a lot of definitions of what's an enterprise what's a company what's a not-for-profit and it's like the definition of a company isn't what we think of it as is like a money grabbing group of angry people trying to get a bunch of money to buy houses is just a company like there's theater companies yeah exactly. like a group of people doing something mm -hmm. and i want to like take back the word company for like the for something good and i feel that's what patagonia did and what i hope to contribute to someday it's just like i like the idea of a company it's just like a band of a band of vagabonds yeah, like doing something Robin Hoods. yeah um, <laughs> Also in the solo scene, there'll be more hopefully genuine desire and need for outdoor tools because people will be camping mm -hmm. more. So it's like, we actually do need these sticks that we use to climb rocks because mm -hmm. that's what we do, yeah. climb rocks. So we need sticks for it. And um, also 
more of the circular corporations because we already talked about it, but I just think it's a very, very nice Solacini economic concept mm -hmm. and more of companies telling people to buy less. I yeah. think that's also kind of cool. I agree. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you on next week's episode. Bye.